Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Um, I'm going to share the scriptures that you've heard before. It's like the Charlie Brown nativity story, uh, Luke 2, 1 through 20, and I'm going to share just briefly. The scriptures say, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left him and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising him for all the things which they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, I'm a reader, and I've got four or five books that I'm reading at any given time. I don't always finish them, but it's, it's fun to read. And uh, there's a word that keeps popping up in the books that I've been reading. It's not a, a, like an SAT impressive word, but it's a word that has just struck me. I've seen it in, in so many different places. And it's a lovely word. It's, the word is adorn, adorn. Uh, Andrew Peterson has a book called Adorning the Dark on the Creative Process. I haven't read it, but it's a great title, Adorning the Dark. To adorn is to enhance or to decorate. Or to to adorn is to make beautiful. And when we adorn something, we're conferring value upon it. And we adorn things that we think are intrinsically good and worth, worth heightening its, its value, the, the degree to which we appreciate it. And there are numerous ways in which we adorn ourselves, we adorn things to tell a story of value or worth. Let me illustrate with the opposite to begin with. Uh, to, to, like thinking about our own clothing, the opposite of to adorn is merely to wear. 
And some of us at like 10.30 tonight are going to be schlepping our way through Walmart because we forgot to get the 2%. But you're going to be wearing something in Walmart, schlepping around, trying to find the odds and ends that you forgot. But to adorn, on the other hand, is to be really careful about how you're presenting yourself to the world. You think about a person going on a date, especially a first date, they want to make a good impression. They choose uh, the garments that they wear carefully. They want to tell a story about themselves of their own worthiness, but, but in carefully adorning themselves, they're also communicating something of the worthiness of the other person. You've probably seen these videos on YouTube. They're really heartwarming, and if you think about it too hard, you realize they're probably also exploitive. But uh, the stories of these, uh, someone's walk, a barber is like walking down the street and he finds someone who's asking for money, who's, who's looking a little rough. And the barber says, hey, can I, you know, sh- you trim your beard and give you a haircut and give you a fresh outfit? And the dude always says yes. And he comes in and he sits down in the chair and the guy's looking at himself in the mirror and he's, maybe it's been a while since he's done that and he's realizing like, I look a little bit grim right now. And the barber spins him around in his chair, and he trims his beard, and he he styles his hair and cuts it, and he gives him a fresh set of clothing. And when he spins him around, it's like the dude is looking at a new person. And in the transition from wearing to adorning, it's like like a, a grand transformation has taken place such that it often moves that person to tears. In seeing the transition from wearing to adorning, he's seeing himself uh, imbued with value in ways that he perhaps hasn't in some time. Pulling into Tulsa from the west side as you're coming over the Arkansas River Bridge, I, I don't know when it happened, but I've only recently appreciated as you come across to the east side of the Arkansas River, there are those two big pillars that are marked with color, and at night they're lit up with a blue light. I assume it has something to do with the tribal heritage of our area, but, but it's, it's somewhat unnecessary design and decor. But someone thought it's worth making it beautiful. And those of you who are like the crazy people who run or bike up and down Riverside, you know all the nature work statues as you make your way down Riverside? It's completely unnecessary. All public art is. It doesn't serve some kind of like functional utility, and yet the the purpose that it serves is it says something about the citizens of this city, that we so value this place where we get to live that we're going to beautify it. We're going to adorn the city in these ways, even though it it doesn't have some kind of practical function for us. Anytime we see public art, it's telling a story about the people who live in it. To us, this isn't flyover country. This isn't just some incidental place. It's the place where we get to live. And this place is valuable to us. It's important to us. In the season of Christmas, we adorn ourselves. Some of you have been to, you know, ugly Christmas sweater parties. We adorn ourselves, our homes, our churches, our streets, even our offices with signs of the season. We decorate, with, uh, we adorn our places and ourselves with signs of Christmas. And we do this because of the beauty of Christmas. Because what happened in the middle of history with Jesus, born to Mary, somehow beautifies all of us. The, the tradition of, of Christmas trees goes back to the medieval period when uh, many people were illiterate and couldn't read or write. And so the church acted out these plays in the public square. And they would use a tree to tell a story of the garden, and the tree would represent the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The same tree would be used to demonstrate the cross. 
Often they'd be decorated with these ornaments, the apples representing the fruit that Adam and Eve took and in initiating their rebellion against God and would later be decorated with these wafers that represent the bread of communion. And the same bread that represented human rebellion against God, the same tree that represented human rebellion against God would be repurposed to tell the story of all that God was willing to do to redeem the people who rebelled against God. In this, this article, the, the tree that was used at one time in the public square in Germany was brought into homes. They used fir trees and began decorating them privately for the same religious purposes. And over time, it was co-opted by the market, and uh, you have Christmas tree ornaments of every single kind. O over time, it's been commercialized, and so you've got, some of you have the, you've, you've collected the Disney ornaments over the years, or probably your mom has, Right? or the precious moments, or you got angels and hockey, play, hockey players and guitars, and you've got like the, the knickknacks that you made at Mother's Day out in 1989 where you're screaming at the camera and it you know, takes you back. But it started with this desire to, to tell the story publicly, to adorn the city with the story of God. I was thinking of this word adorning and, and considering how Jesus and his story and the story of the nativity is adorned with people and places and these items that, that tell us something about the nature of the God we receive in Jesus. When the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God entered into creation, it's worth paying attention to who and what God affirms as valuable and worthy those people and places, things that adorn his story. So think back on the story in Luke. Mary and Joseph, as they're presented to us in the Gospels, are very much a working class couple. They're, they're a poor couple. When they present Jesus in the, in the temple, following the commands of Moses, they make a sacrifice on his behalf, and they make the sacrifice of a poor couple, sacrificing birds on his behalf. You know, the, the story in the Old Testament of the Ark of the Covenant, how the priests bore on their bodies this, this sign and the means of which God's presence was among the people. Martin Luther was so struck by Mary bearing Jesus in her body. He said, how amazing is it that a peasant became the living Ark of the New Covenant? That as Mary waddled her way to Bethlehem, Mary the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the Christotokos, the Christ-bearer, was, was moving and living around as the, the ark of the new covenant of God. God chose this, this very modest, working-class couple to be the ones through whom He'd bring the Son into the world. You've heard the expression, were you born in a barn? Which is, of course, something that people would say if they are questioning your intellect. And Jesus, born in Bethlehem, was born in the opposite of a place of privilege. It was a town that was associated with David's family, but it's kind of like some of those towns you drive through in Oklahoma, and you're like, the shopping cart was invented here. It's like, that's the best thing we could claim? <laughs> you know, David's family was here at one time. It's a modest, modest place. And this is where Jesus comes into the world, not a place of privilege. It's striking, of course, in the narrative, the words are too familiar to us, but the sign given to the shepherds that they've in fact found God's Messiah is that he's swaddled up and in a feeding trough, lying in a manger. We take by this that Jesus is born in a place where animals hang out. 
I think of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Mark's gospel, who as the, the narrative is ending, it says, Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. And Jesus, you think of the, the second person of the Trinity coming into the world, does so in the presence of barnyard animals. You think about the outsiders that are attached to the Jesus story. They came when he was probably a toddler, but the wise men, these foreign astrologers, come seeking uh, the, the Son of God of Israel, the chosen one of Israel. The Holy Family themselves became outsiders when they had to flee the infanticide at the hand of Herod, and they themselves became refugees living in Egypt. You think about other important people in the story. In Luke's gospel, we meet Simeon and Anna, this older, an older man and an older woman, both who'd been waiting to see the consolation of Israel, to see God's Messiah come, and they get to meet the infant Jesus. I could go on and talk about the town in which Jesus was born, or where he was raised. They said, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is where Jesus is raised. We think about his ministry and the, the icons that, that, that capture moments. The triumphal entry when Jesus comes in, he's riding not a mighty battle steed, but a lowly donkey fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah. We see Jesus in John 13 washing the disciples' feet in the towel and the basin. These are attached to the person that he is. We think about the crown of thorns and the cross. Each of these things modest and humble, some of them very, very ordinary, but all of them made beautiful because they adorn Jesus in his story. Each of them find their place of worth in beauty because he included them in his narrative and it tells us something about him. Especially against the backdrop of Roman imperialism, adorned in images of dominance and power and subjugation and privilege, we see how God the Son, Jesus the second person of the Trinity, adorned himself in humility and modesty. We see how God in Jesus identifies with and dignifies along the way the poor and the forgotten and the refugee and the unimportant and the outsider and the elderly and the unwed mom and all who wait and all who suffer injustice at the hands of those who wield their power poorly. Makes me think of Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in very nature God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather he took on uh, the, the form of a servant. So being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I'm, I'm sure your family's a lot like mine, that it really doesn't count as a Christmas Eve service if the preacher didn't count some 1950s dystopian novel. And so... Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Ray Bradbury in his dystopian Fahrenheit 451 observes our tendency to reshape Jesus in our own image. We tend to project onto him the things that we find important. And he has one of his characters saying, I wonder if God recognizes his own son the way that we've dressed him up or has it dressed him down? He's a regular peppermint stick now, all sugar, crystal, and saccharin when he isn't making veiled references to certain commercial products that every worshiper absolutely needs. It's kind of like not appropriate for a Christmas Eve service, but that, that scene around the lunch table in Talladega Nights where they're talking about eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, or 
You know, you know the whole scene. I am convinced that the Jesus or the version of Christianity that so many people have walked away from is not the genuine article, but is a fabrication or a cultural caricature of the God in Christ whom we meet in the scriptures. The God who identifies with the poor, the forgotten, the unimportant, the refugee, the outsider, the elderly. It's so easy, particularly for those of us who are so close to it, to forget the beauty and the humility and the power of, of the nativity, of the incarnation of the Son of God. St. Augustine said, the maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep. The author of Hebrews reminds us that the, the, the importance of the incarnation was that, so that Jesus could be an effective high priest. A priest is one who advocates for God to the people and advocates for the people to God. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus is able to be an empathetic high priest because he knows what it's like to be a person. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way and yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be a single person. He knows what it's like to be full of joy and to be full of anger. To have friends and to have friends break your heart. He knows what it's like, all of the longings of the human heart. Jesus was in the thick of it and therefore is able to be a, a worthy and a good intercessor for us at the right hand of the Father. And I would say to each of you individually as a word of good news that no matter your life situation, the joys of the vulnerabilities that you are bearing, that God the Son who's seated at the right hand of the Father sees you. Just as the, 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 the story of Hagar comes to us in the book of Genesis, Hagar is on the run having been betrayed by the people of God. And God sees her. The first person to name God in the scriptures is this foreign woman who says, you are the God who sees me. And I'd say to you that God sees you, knows the joys and the vulnerabilities you bear, the complexities of being a person. And the God whom we meet in Jesus empathizes with you and is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. And not only does Jesus see you, he also sees the person that you resent the most, that you hate the most. And he'll also see the person unnamed to you who's sleeping under the overpass as you make your way back to your house tonight. It is for the sake of you and me and those we hate and the one who sleeps on the street tonight that God became incarnate through the Virgin Mary and came to us. They say that uh, time in erodes awareness of and familiarity breeds contempt. But my prayer would be that sometime in the coming days, as you meditate on the story of the scripture, maybe there would be a person or a place or an icon of this story that grips your heart. And God uses in a small way to chisel away the scar tissue around your heart that you might love and respond to the Lord Jesus with a renewed kind of innocence like perhaps you had when you first believed. That increasingly in the coming year, we may be men and women who love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray together.
Lord, how complicated have we made your story? For many of us in this room, the, the whole story of Scripture and, and conversations about God, church, religion, Jesus, many of us are, are, are tired of it. It's picked up so much baggage for us over the years. And especially with the stories that are the most familiar, we find it difficult to connect. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you, like a, a skillful surgeon, would tend to the complications of our hearts. Lord, I pray for uh, the people who are dragged along today, and church tonight is the last place on earth they want to be. This person you see and you love. For those, Lord Jesus, this year who had a deep disappointment or a loss and who are finding it difficult to celebrate the story when this year is darkened by all that's happened, I pray that you'd be near to them, Lord. For all of us who just in the, the dreariness of kind of everyday life, the, the, the rhythm of life, have lost touch with uh, the heart that we had when we first believed, Lord, I pray that you'd soften and tenderize us and stir up fresh affections for the Lord Jesus, fresh insights for our mind, fresh love in our heart, fresh eagerness to serve you with our whole lives. And Jesus, thank you that you've not left us alone or, or, or remained as merely a character in the story, but Christ who is, was incarnate and became a man, Christ who will come again, now desires to meet us as the church gathers around the table. I pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Lord, we confess that we've rebelled against you. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own ways, but you've laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but as far as the east is from the west, you've removed them from us. Help us now, Lord Jesus, as those who are forgiven to walk in the light as you are in the light so we can have fellowship with one another and live with a clean conscience and a pure heart. Lord Jesus, we love you and we put our trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.